Last night at the dinner table, uh, my wife graciously asked, she said, hey, what's the, what's the message about tomorrow? And so that was my little opportunity, a little chance to give a little preview and to kind of just flesh some things out loud. And after only two to three minutes, like my middle kid, Levi, where is he? Oh, he's up there, he's waving at me now. He says, how are you going to stretch that out for an hour? <laughs> you know, it's, he's quick with his words and he gets rather to the point. Um, his first red flag, right? And then, then I was going through my slides later that night and Evangeline's running around in the room and she comes up and she's like, what are you working on? I'm like, oh, let me show you a couple of slides. And, and she looks at him, has this big grin on her face and says, dad, and just hits me with her elbow. She's like, why are you going to do that? And second red flag. So I, I think what I have prepared for us this morning is from the Lord, I hope. But those two rags, uh, flags, I'm just going to bypass altogether. Um, this message is a very challenging message for me. Personally, as I've had an opportunity to uh, be a youth pastor here for four years um, and then also be a Bible teacher at a Christian high school over in Tigard for eight, I've been working on this message, let's say maybe eight years now. And it's a tough one. Um, it's one thing to consider it for yourself, and then it's another when, when people just start telling you about their life and all the stuff that's going on in their world, the burdens that weigh them down, and then it just it takes on a whole new set of meaning. So what I'm about to share, um, obviously, I haven't got it all figured out. And when Scott asked me, hey, which one of these passages do you want to share on? I, I wanted this because personally I wanted to invest more time in what does it mean, what does it look like to be a disciple, and how can that benefit me in my life and the people that I get to engage with in life at high school every day. Still learning what this message is all about. That said, I'm also pretty sensitive about this material that's in here, and we'll get into why in a little bit. Uh, a bit raw and tender in my heart, especially after digging through a lot of emotions as this text, as the scripture does a really good job surfacing in our heart. And so, um, maybe more than Eric does in a message, I might, I might have to shed a few tears and you might have to endure that, okay? But he's a great example of that, so he's not the only one that is in awe of Jesus. Um, so the big idea, if you are one who takes notes, or that's not you, you just have a bear trap of a memory, um, the big idea from today's message, and I'm going to circle around this big idea a handful of times, it's be in awe of Jesus. Be in awe of Jesus. And so, naturally, I, I have a title for today's message. Um, let's see if it can pull up on the screen. Uh, countdown, maybe. Uh-oh. Here we go. They're going to save me. Save me, as the text says here in a second. There we go. Okay. So, nope, 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 nope. There we go. That's the title of my message for you guys. Okay, it's going to hopefully stick in your mind. Again, I teach high schoolers, so bear with me. Um, but it sticks in my mind, and you're going to see why when we, when we jump into the text. Halloween cat, all right? Halloween cat. But we'll, we'll come back to that furry friend soon enough. Okay, so Elon Musk, one of the greatest entrepreneurs of our age, operates on what is called first principle thinking. 
So Musk describes it this way. You boil things down to the most fundamental truths and say, what are we sure is true? And then, he says, reason up from there. I like that question. Um, I don't think that kind of wisdom is just for the people in this world. I think texts like we're going to see today gets us to ask those really important questions. So what is it for you? That's a question for you to ask yourself right now, a little reflection in your own heart. What are you sure is true? And again, you can even write some things down. Maybe you might have the right answers, and that's, that's good. And then hopefully we can learn to reason up from that. But, and and this is where it gets so incredibly challenging to encourage people to be in awe of Jesus. Because we could all, even in this room, certainly as a church worldwide, we could all have a different approach and a different response to that answer for a reason that I'll get into in just a moment. What is it that we think is most true and how are we reasoning up from that? This is to say, as Jesus said, we all build our lives on something. And, and Taylor walked us through that uh, a few weeks ago now. And, and reading the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 24, he said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus already identified what is the most true thing his teachings. And if we can build our lives on his teachings, that's going to be good for us. It's going to go well for us. But um, the something that we might think is the most true thing uh, might be different for a lot of us. And and here's why. I kind of jumped the gun on that last one, but this this is why. We're all carrying something different into this relationship with Jesus. Into being a disciple and into following Jesus, we are all carrying something into that walk, okay? And and so to have an object lesson just for this uh, morning, uh, we'll we'll pretend that Josh is Jesus over here, okay? Okay. He's a good Jesus, right? Out of anybody in the Bible, you would say he's like Jesus. I'm, I'm certain. So I have over here, just uh, look at that. It's blue. It's my wife. She let me use it for this morning. This is what happens when Jesus calls us as, as a disciple. We, as a disciple, maybe it's fresh. Maybe it's awesome. We hear the words of Jesus. and We're like, yeah, that sounds great. And Jesus would call us, and we would say, okay, I'm going to follow. And so we begin to follow Jesus with our baggage. And all of us have something that we're carrying in our life. Um, And I'm going to make that point uh, throughout, so I hope that is clear going into this passage. Wouldn't it be nice? Yeah, I was just kind of thinking about this in my own life, in my own walk with the Lord. Wouldn't it be nice if I could just check that baggage at the door, and then the rest of my walk with Jesus is just peaches and roses, and never a single problem ever again? That would be awesome. The thing is, we're humans. We have life experience that's different from the person sitting next to you. We have challenges. We have roadblocks. We have things that have happened to us. And we have things that we have done that we ought not to have done. 
All of that can fit into the baggage metaphor here. And thankfully, Jesus doesn't say, at least I didn't hear him say it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you can't bring that into a relationship with me. Anything but that, please. Jesus doesn't say that, thankfully. He doesn't say that in 5, 6 to 7. He doesn't have the doom and gloom approach. Get your act together before you walk with me. He teaches from care and concern, knowing his way is ultimately what is most true and life-giving to us. So one of the things we discussed at our pastor's meeting this last week is that this isn't just another Jesus story. So we're going to be entering like a section in the Gospel of Matthew that is just packed full of these little stories of Jesus that Matthew brilliantly just knit together to communicate who Jesus is. And as a disciple, what does it look like to follow him, to be in his presence during moments where we can learn something about ourselves? So this isn't just like another little Jesus story. There is something in each story of the gospel that acts as a facet to the ever-brilliant diamond statement at the end of the gospel when we get there, 20 chapters from now. I'm with you always. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. All right, and some of the older translations um, do a good job, perhaps, of communicating that. So again, I have a little silly picture here. The King James Version, right? Any, uh, any one of you memorize your scripture from the old King James? Um, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. But the message, the newer generation, we like better translations, so we think, look at that one. Yes, you've all been rickrolled, okay? I've been really looking forward to doing that in a message to rickrolling you. Um, but check it out. Like, that's what Jesus does for us. He's with us, with our baggage. He doesn't say, check that out the door. I can't handle that. I could die for all the sins of the world except yours. Like, that's not how Jesus functions, thankfully. So this message in Matthew also teaches us as disciples that we need to position ourselves in such a way that we unlearn everything we have learned in our lives apart from Christ. That's a tough thing to do. Jesus is literally re reteaching them, providing commentary on what what is this law of God? How does this look in your life? How does it look in practice? We have to unlearn everything. This is a classic archetype and really popular stories. Some of my favorite stories like this, Miyagi. He has some wonderful one-liners, right, if you remember him. No such thing as bad student, only bad teacher. Thankfully, Jesus isn't a bad teacher. We can walk with him throughout the entirety of the Gospel of Matthew, and we can learn how to be a student, place ourselves under his authority. He would also say, Daniel, son, lie become truth only if person want to believe it. This, will, this has the potential to become what is most true to you, and you're going to reason up from that. And Jesus is saying, I have something way better for you to reason up from. And we get to spend time in the Gospel looking at that looking at the life of Christ. And I think, who said it best? Come on, Yoda. You must unlearn what you have learned. He said it word for word. It's an archetype. It's, it's classic in all, all sorts of literature. So we are learning how to take our focus off our baggage and put our focus on Jesus. I believe this is what uh, this passage is getting at. So let's take a look at the passage. Bye-bye, Miyagi and Yoda. We'll see you guys later. Matthew 8, 23 says this, and when he got into the boat, 
his disciples followed him. And I'm just going to read the whole thing before we get into it. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? What a brilliant question. Can't wait to get to that in a moment here. So I highlighted here a couple of words that I think are key, at least in this verse, to help us to understand what Matthew is doing in this part of Jesus' story. So the first one, disciple, if you are one to write ideas down, it's one who engages in learning through instruction. The other, another meaning is one who is constantly associated with someone. I like that. You want to place yourself as a learner under somebody else, and you want to constantly associate yourself with that person. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So what do we do as a disciple of Jesus? We learn based on his instruction. Here are his plans for us, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Don't wait for Scott to do another series on Matthew. He won't. He's told me earlier. He's like, nope, this is it. Not going to do another one. Jump back into Matthew 5, 6, and 7. See what Jesus says about how we ought to live and get plugged into the way of Christ engage in learning and constantly associate yourself with him carve out time specific times in your day to be with jesus it's not just like a checkoff list thing it's not like okay from sunrise to sunset check off sunrise check off sunset that is more of a hebrew idea that says it covers the span of the entire day to meditate on these things that is our goal that's the purpose of being a disciple and then to follow and I think at this time, um, if you don't already call him that, you should call him Pastor J-Rob, pastor at Gladstone Church. Um, he said, this would be a great time to invite people into that discipleship, into following Jesus. So if you're sitting here and you're like, you know, that's not something I do. On, on Sunday I show up. Maybe I go to a, go to a life group. And, but the other days it's kind of hard. Like you can say, I want to choose to follow Jesus. I want to place myself under his instruction every single day. And I want to constantly find myself being associated with him. Um, that's the invitation. So Pastor J-Rob's like, hey, make sure to share that good news. And in the discipleship and following Christ model, I see two very clear things. One of those is a disciple is an engaged learner. That's abstract, all right? So as you're reading through the scripture, as you are taking note of what Jesus taught us to do, all of those are simply good ideas, all right? That's the abstract. A follower is engaged in movement, okay? So if you are somebody who is following, you are moving behind someone in the same direction. You're moving behind someone who is taking the lead, I think in our generation, I struggle with this. Again, a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the things that I'm going to say is, uh, are, are my struggles. So I struggle with taking the lead myself, doing things on my own. Yeah, I might have those abstract thoughts about the good idea that Jesus taught, and then what do I do with that? I don't always put that into practice. I don't always let Jesus take the lead. But I have to learn in my life to say, okay, Jesus... You have the lead in my life. I want to constantly associate myself. I want you to take the lead. Please, 
both the abstract and the concrete. We will always be a disciple and follower of something or someone. This is where I want to ask the question again as a disciple, what are you reasoning up from? And I'm talking about like the daily, every single day, what is it that you reason up from? A disciple that reasons up is building habits every single day. So on the one hand, it might be good to hear the teachings of Christ, but are we putting those into practice and making them concrete in such a way that that becomes our very life, our very existence? It's a habit now. Uh, A study showed that the shortest time it took to develop a habit was only 18 days. That's pretty cool. Um, The longest, sadly, and this probably describes some of us in this room, the longest time it takes to form a habit is 254 days. Wow. And then the average is about 66. All right, so I want you to think about that for a moment. If today you're like, all right, I want to put into practice, not just have good abstract thoughts of Jesus, but concrete actions put into practice the words of Christ, you, you have your reading material. Go back to 5, 6, and 7 and say, well, what did Jesus tell me to do? Maybe for the next 18 days, you can be like, I want to pray every single day. I don't want to do it just once a week or twice a week. I want to make a goal. I want to make a habit of just constantly associating myself with Jesus. I want to pray every single day. And then you could also say, well, what about fasting? You know, I want to give something up, set, carve some time aside to put that into practice. And you're going to see the benefits and results of that, which I'll get to soon enough. But again, if you, if you started that today, the earliest you would become like solidified in your habit as a disciple of Jesus would be like March 10th. That's awesome. That's hopeful. That's right around the corner for a lot of us. If you're more average and you're like, ah, eh, take 66 days, April 27th. You know, so you can put that in your calendar. Say, I'm going to do something until April 27th. And then if you're, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, 254 days, you're looking at like November 1st. But don't think of that in the tone that I put it. It's like, you get to do that for that long and even more after that date. It's going to become such a habit that it's going to become your practice. It's going to become who you are. People are going to look at your life and you'll be like, oh my goodness, that person looks like Christ. I want to follow that too. And that's how this good news spreads. It's beautiful. So Matthew 8, 24, let's look at this one. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. This verse truly opens a door for us to consider a lot of Old Testament passages, all right? Uh, Matthew, a Jew, writing to Jews about a Jew. Obviously, he's deeply entrenched in the Old Testament. Um, And so check this out. There are a handful of passages in the Old Testament that talk about God and the interaction God has with the, the waters. So it says, when the waters saw you, O God, When the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are. O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. He made the storm to be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
Remember, never going to give you. No, okay, we're done with that. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. We get the clear teaching, the clear sense that God is with his people and hushes the waves, the wind, and the sea and the storm, and he gets people to their desired haven. Earlier, Jesus told the disciples, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. That's what's in question now. Do they actually think they're going to get to the other side? So back to this verse then, and behold, again, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. I think sometimes it feels like God is asleep when we're going through problems. Have you ever felt that way? Like you have this huge problem, and maybe you're going through a really big dip in your life, a valley of the shadow of death. I don't know about you, but I've felt that at times. Where are you, God? What's going on? Um, and perhaps that's why we see this Jesus is asleep. To me, the great storms we see in this passage can signify all sorts of problems that arise in life. Either circumstantial, like we see here, it's environmental, um, things that happen to us, or things that happen to us as a result of our decisions. Either kind of problem can feel overwhelming. So I want to think about things that happen to us for a moment. So I have a, just a small list here, loss of job, sickness, death, which could summarize for a lot of the world's population, 2020 and 2021. There's a lot of that happening. And a while back, when we were going through some of that storm, Scott uh, walked us through the book of Job. And I believe at that time he suggested the book, which I highly recommend again, A Grace Disguised. If you haven't read that, if you haven't purchased it, please get it and read it. A grace disguised. When he suggests a book, when your pastor does, read it. So Scott had some good uh, suggestion there. Talk about an overwhelming situation in this book. And if you've heard about it, it is tragic. So the author, Jerry Sitzer, experienced great loss. In one tragic car accident, he lost his daughter, his wife, and his mother. Gone. Three generations. Just hit. That's it. It's over. So I listened to the book once, and I'm going through it again, and he has a couple of quotes that I found significant for today's uh, message. He says, Catastrophic loss wreaks destruction like a massive flood. It is unrelenting, unforgiving, and uncontrollable. The waves do not ask the disciples for permission to freak them out, nor does the world ask you, are you ready for this turmoil, this great storm? It doesn't. And time and time again, we are thrown into a great storm in our own life. Unrelenting, unforgiving, and uncontrollable. Brutally erosive to body, mind, and spirit. He also said after the accident, I remember sinking into my favorite chair night after night, feeling so exhausted and anguished that I wondered whether I could survive another day. Whether I wanted to survive another day. I felt punished by simply being alive and thought death would bring welcomed relief. Somebody like Jerry hit a low, so low, that he was beginning to question his very existence and should he continue. As a disciple, and he was a disciple of Jesus, we bring, whether it's circumstances that happen to us or decisions that we made, we bring that into a relationship with God. And when that storm hits, 
oh man, we are tested. We're tested and that's tough. Another story, I want to read this. It's, it's a couple of paragraphs and I believe it's really encouraging. It's a tragedy, but it's beautiful. Horatio G. Spafford was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago with a, loving, a lovely family, a wife, Anna, and five children. However, they were not strangers to tragedy. Their young son died with pneumonia, and in that same year, much of their business was lost in the great Chicago fire. On November 21st, 1873, the French ocean liner was crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. to Europe. Among the passengers were Mrs. Spafford and their four daughters. Although Mr. Spafford had planned to go with his, wife, uh, his family, he found it necessary to stay in Chicago to help solve an unexpected business problem. He told his wife he would join her and their children in Europe a few days later. His plan was to take another ship. About four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, the ship collided with a powerful iron-holed Scottish ship. Suddenly, all of those on board were in grave danger. Anna hurriedly brought her four children to the deck. She knelt there with Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tanita, and prayed that God would spare them if that could be his will, or to make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. Within approximately 12 minutes, the ship split, uh, uh, slipped beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of the passengers, including the four Spafford children. A sailor, rowing a small boat over the spot where the ship went down, spotted a, a woman floating on a piece of the wreckage. It was Anna, still alive. He pulled her into the boat, and they were picked up by another large vessel. She wired her husband a message which began... Saved alone, what shall I do? Mr. Spafford later framed the telegram and placed it in his office. Another of the ship's survivors later recalled Anna saying, God, give me four, uh, God gave me four daughters. Now they have been taken from me. Some, someday I will understand why. Mr. Spafford booked passage on the next available ship and left to join his grieving wife. With the ship about four days out, the captain called Spafford to his cabin and told him they were over the place where his children went down. According to Bertha Spafford Vester, a daughter born after the tragedy, Spafford wrote, it is well with my soul while on that journey. And just hear some of these words as he's over the very place where the sea, swamped by the waves, took his very kids when peace like a river attendeth my soul, or my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Do you guys get this sense that he was in awe of Jesus? He had terrible baggage that no one would wish on anybody. And he had this baggage as a disciple and follower of Jesus over the very place where his kids were swallowed by the waters. And he says, it's well with my soul. I'm experiencing peace. You guys, that is somebody who is in awe of Jesus. That is somebody who's not just thinking about this in abstract concepts, but really putting down concrete memories, saying, I trust in Jesus even when this happens even when something like that happens. 
So I want you to think in your own life, as I have this verse up here, what is a great storm you have walked through or perhaps even currently are walking through right now? And I only ask that. I don't want to just drum up emotions for no reason. I ask that because I want the Spirit through the text this morning. I want you to meet Christ in such a fresh way that you could be in awe of Him and learn as a disciple to begin to move through that storm. Again, Jesus has care and concern for His disciples that are lugging around great storms of baggage. He has care and concern for us. The text continues, and they went and woke Him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. What does that sound like to you? You have to put on your Old Testament hat. Again, Matthew, a Jew, writing to Jews about a Jew. What does that sound like? What part of the Bible? Just kind of think about that. Um, I think it sounds like a psalm. I think what they're doing is perhaps practicing some of those abstract thoughts as young Jewish boys that they were raised on. And so this is, this is what they say. Look at this, Psalm 69, 1 and 2. Save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink deep in mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Sounds like they get it, right? Like, and they even called Jesus Lord, if you noticed in that passage. Um, and Lord, obviously, uh, Eric last week was talking a little bit about the titles. And the week before that, Scott was also talking about titles. So clearly in this passage here, uh, a title of Lord and Teacher um, are in a stark contrast in my understanding. Like, it's one thing to call Jesus Lord, but it's a completely different thing to understand what that means and live your life as a result of that. Remember the end of this book, like Jesus is going to say, many are going to come to me on that final day and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the wonderful things we've done. And he's going to be like, I never knew you. So it's not enough to just be able to shout the name Lord. And I think we're going to see something here uh, that teaches us that's not enough to simply shout the name Lord. So Lord is somebody who has a, a position of authority, and, and they're, they're noticing perhaps maybe something's different with this Jesus guy. Maybe he's above the normal human level, as some of these other people, you know, the, the faith of the centurion. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at my house, suffering terribly. Um, Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. So here we see a centurion even calling Jesus Lord. Um, and then another person, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Again, not really understanding what that title means, Lord, because he probably wouldn't have wanted to go bury his father. He probably just wanted to follow Jesus at that moment if he truly understood what Lord meant, as Eric walked us through last week. And then the title, a teacher, like it's a derogatory term. You're going to see that throughout the Gospel of Matthew over this, the course of the next 20 chapters. Scribes and the leaders use that in a, in a way that's kind of like abiding, kind of derogatory towards Jesus. But here again, with the disciples, they're using this idea, this, this word Lord, and maybe they're coming along in a certain way. So a couple of weeks ago, Scott talked that, uh, about Lord, Eric talked that about teacher. I do believe there's something important and significant about this title. And we're going to see that here with the response of Jesus. He says, why are you afraid? This is what he says to them. Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. This honestly, I don't know if you're ever reading the Gospels and you just have like a head-scratching moment, this is definitely one of those moments where I'm like, didn't the disciples do the right thing? And we talked about this in our pastor's meeting. 
um, I would expect Jesus to certainly wake up and be like, good job, you knew where to go. You called me Lord, and you said, save me, right? Like, that almost sounds like we should make that a prayer. But Jesus doesn't. He actually says this, why are you afraid? You're, you have little faith. And so I think the words here are important to get us to understand what Jesus is trying to do with his disciples. I think he's trying to call them up to something greater. And so one of the words, afraid, simply means cowardly, timid. You're lacking confidence. So as the disciples, as they think they're perishing, they run to Jesus, wake him up, say, Lord, save us, please, we're perishing. And he's like, you're timid. You're cowardly. You lack confidence. And the other one is little trust and you have little trust. It's like, thanks, Jesus. Anything else? Um, I thought I did the right thing. I thought I came to you. Jesus is checking what the disciples are reasoning up from. It goes back to that initial point. What are they reasoning up from? To the disciples, what is that which is most true in their current experience of the great storm? And again, this is where I think uh, this picture, our furry friend, is valuable, super helpful. Um, and that's the title of the sermon today, which is Halloween Cat. What, you know, what, what happens when a cat gets scared? Why does a cat look like that when it gets freaked out? Its fur puffs up and it seeks to, what, uh, imitate its, the predator, the thing that's trying to kill it, is what um, people who study cats and cat issues tell us, I suppose. So I was listening to a psychologist the last couple of weeks, and they, they actually explained this phenomenon and tried to relate it to the human experience. And I was kind of blown away. Um, we too, as humans, have the same built-in mechanism that these cats have. I don't know if you knew that. And whether or not we experience fear or anxiety or awe, I don't know if you've ever been placed in such a way in your life that you're like, the, the hairs on the back of my head or neck are standing up, the hairs on my arm are standing up, and my goodness, I feel a sense of fear, anxiety, or awe. Jump scares can do this to us. Levi tries to scare me almost every time I come home, and sometimes I'm like, oh gosh, and hairs on my arm and neck stand up. Or being late to work, oh gosh, I don't know. That's, for me, that's always been a sinking feeling. I have like a reoccurring nightmare showing up late to work. I don't know why. It's ridiculous. Maybe it's encouraging me to stay awake, uh, not, not to stay awake too late. Um, I'm not certain, but man, if I ever showed up to work late, I'd be freaked out. Or music has a tendency to do this. Have you ever enjoyed music to the point where you're like, it sends chills down your back? You're in awe of something, okay? So the psychologist, this guy is agnostic, doesn't believe in God. He was describing the sense of awe that he experiences while he's looking up at the stars. Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked to the heavens, as the psalmists say, and you're like, the glory of God is being declared right now, day after day, night after night, it pours forth speech. Have you ever just felt the sense of chill, maybe, as you're on a hike, and you set up that tent, and you have a little bit of extra time that night to consider the stars, and it just sends this chill down your back, and you realize, whoa, I am lesser than something that is greater out there. So he talks about that. He says, this makes him... He's talking about his own feeling. He says, this makes him want to imitate something, but he doesn't know what that something is. I would say dot, 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 yet. Now, earlier, I said we reason up from something, whether it's the baggage that we carry into, with our, relation, into our relationship with Christ or Christ's teaching or himself being in awe of him. 
the truest thing for the disciples, and this is what Jesus is putting in check here, so please don't miss this. I think this is a really important part. The truest thing for the disciples was that they were going to perish. The truest thing for the disciples at that point wasn't that Jesus was on the boat with them. The truest thing is that they were going to perish. Jesus already told them, we're going to go to the other side. That wasn't the truest thing. The word of Jesus in that moment was not the truest thing for them. And so they reasoned up from something that was wrong. So that's why Jesus uses that phrase, are you afraid? You have little faith, coward, timid, lacking confidence, not enough trust. They're reasoning up from the wrong thing. In other words, what I think Jesus is saying is, the text is clear, I think. He says, why are you afraid? Or, better put, why are you Halloween catting at the wrong thing? Don't be in awe of the great storm. Do you guys see what's going on here? The baggage that we bring into a relationship with Christ. Don't be in awe of the baggage. The things that have happened to us or the things that as a result of our decisions are now we're dealing with the consequence. Don't be in awe of that stuff. You could call me Lord all day long and miss out on the reality that you're building your life on the wrong thing. You're reasoning up from the wrong thing. Don't do that. In, a, in the great storm moments of our life, we are going to do one of two things. We're going to consider our circumstances or we're going to consider Christ. What I believe Matthew is doing in the story of Jesus in the great storm is revealing to us what we ought to do in those moments of great distress. And ultimately, I think what he's telling us to do here is be in awe of him. Be in awe of him. Matthew 8, 27, to close, says, And the men marveled. Hey, they're getting there, right? Jesus had that rebuke for them. Now they're marveling. They're like, oh my goodness. And they said, and I left it out on purpose here, what sort is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Notice, this is like Bible 101 observations up until this point, these people were called disciples. Do you see here in the text what they're called? Men. Okay, so Matthew is not calling them disciple at this point. They're men who marvel at Jesus. And I also left out right there what sort of man, as it says in your text, that word man isn't in the original. Anthropos ain't there. It literally just says, what sort is this? And I think now is the time they're realizing oh my gosh, I use that title, Lord, but I saw what he did. Men don't do that. What sort of a person does that? And they're beginning to grow, again, reasoning from that which is ultimately true. Christ put them in check. They got the lesson. They're marveling at who he is, and they're reasoning up from that point of view. I find that to be just absolutely fascinating here in the text. So I think, since I already asked you what great storm is it you, you're going through right now also, thinking about that, can we also consider this question? What sort of a person is Jesus in the midst of that storm? Whatever it is you're going through, whatever baggage you have carried into a relationship with Christ, which is different from all of us. And sometimes what we like to do is we like to say, well, I've dealt with my baggage this way, and I'm going to make sure you deal with your baggage that way, and 
and we miss out completely on being gracious and patient and kind and long-suffering to each other. So as we're all considering that great storm that we're walking through, please, this is the big idea here. Ask yourself the same questions the disciples asked. What sort of person is this? And again, what happens when we're in awe of Jesus? It will lead to imitation. We will begin to imitate Christ more and more in our life the more we are in awe of him. Ultimately, be in awe of Christ. I, found, I find it rather interesting. Um, a couple quick points, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll have a chance to be in awe of Jesus once again. Berkeley.edu, no intellectual slouches over there, right? They have been doing some research the last 15 years about the impact of what happens when people are in awe of something. So I have a, I have a nice little list here. Awesome results, they say. Awe may improve your mood and make you more satisfied with life. I guarantee you, the storms that we've been walking through, again, I'm saying this as a challenge and check for myself, I'm not really good at this. In 2020 and 2021, there's been a lot that has just like, I feel like I'm just in that storm. And I feel like my mood's not always good all the time. I look on news and I'm like, I'm not always satisfied with life. When I am in awe of Christ, I think my mood gets better. I think I'm more satisfied with life. Awe may be good for your health. The scriptures even talk about what happens when we hold bitterness inside. Proverbs say there's a way to extend your life too. We can actually have good health. Awe may help you think more critically. Think about the lessons that Christ already taught us. If we are in awe of him, his teachings are going to make way more sense. We're not going to want to wait till Scott does, well, he's not here right here, he was here last service. We're not going to want to wait till Scott does another Matthew series. We're going to want to be in awe of Christ so much that we're just going to begin to practice Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Awe may decrease materialism. Oh, my goodness. We need that in our world today. We just want stuff. We think stuff's going to satisfy us. It never will, never has. The only thing that can satisfy who we are inside, you know, as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you, God. The only thing that's going to satisfy us is an eternal being, God. Awe makes you feel smaller and more humble. Notice the other prayers of the disciples as they spend time with Jesus and the other gospels, that I might decrease and he would increase. The sense of awe that you have when you consider the heavens. How amazing it is that he spoke that all into existence. What can you speak into existence? <laughs> awe can make you feel like you have more time. Awe can make you more generous and cooperative. Awe can make you feel more connected to other people and humanity. And what I see here, what you can do in your own, you can see how all of these are real outcomes of the teachings of Christ. Berkeley was like, berkeley.edu, oh, we're figuring this stuff in, out in the last 15 years. Matthew's like, you've had this church for 2,000 years. You can be in awe of Jesus and look at the benefits of that. So be in awe of Jesus. This also helps me better understand the Beatitudes. Certain times and stages in my life, I have turned the Bible into a checkoff list. The very word of God, the God who wants a relationship with me, to relate to me. I've turned that into a checkoff list. 
I read my Bible. I do these things. When you were in awe of Jesus, again, just speaking from experience here, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is not a checkoff list. You just naturally begin to follow Jesus. You begin to follow him because you're in awe of him. So I created a word for us this morning, okay? Be in awe of him and you will follow him. It won't be a checkoff list. And especially do that because storms come. They do. They don't ask you for permission. Hey, I'm going to show up at uh, 5 o'clock when you get home on Friday afternoon. Big storm coming. Just be ready. Doesn't work that way. Just happens. So to wrap things up here, the disciples also noticed something rather important and significant for us. What sort is this? Who is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him? Like they are blown away. And the, the advice that I tried to convince myself of here is just don't be one-upped by the sea, John. All right? Like don't let the sea and the winds and the wave have all the fun in obeying the words of Christ. Be in awe of him, John. You're the creation. He is the creator. This is how you will experience that great calm that the text talks about here in a great storm. And that's the hard thing for us to do uh, individually. It's a hard thing for us to do in a community, to carry the baggage. Paul would even say, share the load, carry one another's burdens. If this stuff is too hard for you, pretty soon we'll be in Matthew 11, and Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Uh, my burden is light. The yoke is easy. That's what he wants us to do, is to follow him in such a way that we're not carrying that alone. One of the greatest things that I think you could take out of a passage like this is you are not alone as you're carrying this baggage. Right now, we have an opportunity to uh, come again uh, by way of music into the presence of God. And we have a chance to be in awe of Jesus. And I asked this question to you only because I asked it of myself and was kind of shocked. When was the last time you have sat in the presence of God and felt that chill just down your spine? The hairs on your arms standing up because you knew you were in the presence of something absolutely great and wonderful and spectacular. We're going to be led in worship. Jesus is here in our midst and we have the opportunity to be in awe of him as you're going through that storm. Let me say a prayer for you guys. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these words. Thank you that they have been recorded for us to put in check what are we considering to be the most true thing and how are we reasoning up from that in our life. If it's the baggage, if it's the burdens, if it's so hard for us to get our eyes off of the great storm that is happening in our life, God, would you do what you've been doing for thousands of years? Would you be gracious to us in this moment as we're led in worship? Would you show up in such a profound way that we are in awe of you? It's not just good ideas, good thinking, Peter Panology. This is something that we can put into concrete practice that is going to benefit us and not just us, but others around us in our world. God, you are so good, so gracious, so long-suffering. You don't tell us to check this stuff at the door. You walk through life with us. Thank you. I pray that during this time right now, as we're led in worship, that this would truly be a moment where we can experience you in the midst of our great storm. Amen.